Ron and Anian. Real honest to God phone call, folks. Hey, I've got a flat tire. If I put air in it, how far can I go? And I said, I really need a good answer for this. What color are my eyes? And they said, I don't know. And I said, well, that's right. You haven't seen my eyes and I haven't seen your tire. Let's talk about stupidity because I yes. know you're against it. I am against it. Yes. But at the same time, I don't think the world would work without it. Well, you can't tell. The Car Doctor. The Car Doctor. You've got two four cylinders under the hood. And the way the computer looks at it on this car is it looks at the left side and the right side. Until you know what the right side is doing, it's really not a safe bet to start diagnosing anything. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, The Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Just how hard is it to diagnose air conditioning? Well, that's a good question, and we're going to answer it right now this hour. Hello and welcome. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900 to answer your questions and solve your problems as I have these past many years. More information about this radio show is out there at cardoctorshow.com. You can remember to visit us out on Facebook, Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. And if you need me during the week, the doctor is always available, ron at cardoctorshow.com. How hard is it to fix air conditioning? Well, the real question is, where do you start? And that in of itself becomes a problem. 2013 Mazda CX-5 came into the doors at the shop this week. Welcome to the repair of the week, by the way. And the issue was, here's a three-year-old vehicle with about 50,000 miles on it that the air conditioning doesn't work. Is it electrical? Is it low on refrigerant? Is it a component failure? Is it operator error? Or as my dad used to say, is it cockpit trouble? It could be any one of the four or five. But where do you start? How do you explain to somebody, well, in order to properly diagnose this, I've got to do a leak check. I've got to verify the type of refrigerant that's in there. I've got to go through a code scan. I've got to look at the electronics. It's not cables and levers and mechanical things anymore. Air conditioning has become such an electronic component, component and part and par- parcel of the vehicle that you've got to look at everything and you've got to do it all within 20 minutes because diagnostic charges start to really rack up. I decide I've established a routine for air conditioning diagnosis and I always do them the same way. And that's real important when you're diagnosing things for a living. And even when you're just starting out or when you're looking at the leaky roof at home or you're trying to solve the water problem in the basement, you've got to have a diagnostic routine. It, it, it pays dividends in the long run. Every air conditioning car we look at, at the shop, I will automatically do the same steps each and every time. An AC diagnosis with me begins with AC refrigerant identification. Warm up the machine, plug it in, take a sample of the refrigerant in the system. 134, we're good to go. A couple of reasons why I do this. If it tells me that it doesn't register 134 and it's a 134 vehicle, I know somebody's been here before me. And more importantly, if someone's been here before me, and they've used some of the refrigerants in a can that you'll find out there at some of your local auto parts stores, Band-Aid in a box, as I call it. They will also include in some of those AC samples sealer, because everybody just wants that. We'll just pour some liquid sealer in, and we'll fix the air conditioning leak that we think we have that way, even though we're not quite sure what is really going on. 
The problem is if I put my $6,000 air conditioning machine on that system with refrigerant and sealer in it, I stand a very good chance of ruining that $6,000 AC machine. Did I tell you that it was six grand? And all of a sudden, what could be a good job for the shop becomes a very expensive job for the shop in the wrong direction. Once I know what type of refrigerant I've got in it, what, what are my pressures? Where am I at? Gee, if I'm low on charge, all right, let's start with an evacuation. Let's remove whatever little bits left in there. Let's pull a vacuum, and let's see how long it'll hold that vacuum, and then let's charge it. Let's see what happens next. In the meantime, while the machine's working, I'll, I'll get out a scan tool, depending upon the flavor of car I'm working on, do a complete body scan of, of all the modules related to the air conditioning, or I'll do a system scan and just go through the whole car, depending upon your make and model, and have more information. After about 45 minutes, I've now baselined the car to the point that I've got a real good direction of where I want to go and what I want to do. In the case of this Mazda, it turned out that it only had two ounces of refrigerant in it. And I know you're all faced with this from time to time. This is not an uncommon occurrence. And one of the problems becomes you never find the leak. And part of that's the technology. It seems that we can put a guy on the moon. We can be in different parts of the world in, in a matter of hours. We can be there instantaneously with the magic of the Internet. We can't make a tool that accurately identifies refrigerant when it's leaking. Or can we? Or have we? You see, one of the things I use in my diagnostic arsenal is I'll go through the routine and I'll play the game and I'll use all the standard tools. And then when I don't find that leak, when I can't sniff it out anywhere, when I, when I don't see any evidence of oil or wetness or any signs of air conditioning leak, I wash the AC lines. Well, sort of. I get a bottle of soapy water. And I will very carefully go around all the joints and all the seams and all the suspect areas. And guess what I'm looking for? Bubbles. All right? And I'm looking for a little bubble, 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 bubble. And it was interesting with this Mazda because I found the leak, but not exactly where I would have expected it. The bottom line becomes that diagnostic routines are a very important part of the puzzle. You've got to have a procedure. You've got to make sure you're going through a procedure because otherwise if you skip steps, if your mind isn't trained and you're not going one, two, three, four, if you go one, two, five, you've missed two steps. And you've got a problem on your hands. In the case of the Mazda, the line between the condenser and the evaporator on the outside of the line, where they soldered it together at the factory, had a pinhole in it. And I sat there with refrigerant in the system with my soapy water bottle, fush, 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 bubbles. And I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly how I was going to solve the problem, and I did, to make a very happy customer and a very cool customer. And in the end, that's what every repair shop is looking to do. Hello and welcome. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900 is the phone number. Happy to be here and proud to serve. I should point out down around the bottom of the hour, we're going to be joined by Sandy Freed. Sandy is a tire expert, as I refer to him. He is from the Tire Warehouse. And we are going to be talking to Sandy about a recent phenomenon that's in the news, and it's been a conversation now for quite some time, and it's come to my attention that it seems to be surfacing again and rising in occurrence, and that of spare tire failure, and not spare tire failure on the road, but spare tire failure on the vehicle when you're storing it after it sits there for a period of time, in that we're seeing a rash of spare tire explosions.
And we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those possible causes are and how you can avoid that. So you want to stick around for that. That's an interview down around the bottom of the hour. But right now, real quick, what do you say we open the garage doors? I'm getting the high sign from Big Tony. And let's go over and talk to Dustin on line two about an 88 Samurai and some questions about uh, modifications. Dustin, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? I've got an 88 and a half Suzuki Samurai. Okay. And I was driving it down the road one day, and it all of a sudden started blowing blue smoke and drinking oil. Uh-oh. Maybe, so maybe it was I've thirsty. Figured out that, I've got, figured out that it's got bad rings. All right. So I've got a choice here. I can either rebuild the engine. I can swap the engine for a 1.6 out of a Geo Tracker, or I can swap the engine for a VW uh, Jetta diesel. All right, let me ask you this, Dustin. What are you doing with this vehicle? Is this an everyday vehicle on the road, or is this a crawler out in the woods? It's a crawler out in the woods. Okay. So crawler out in the woods, we're going for reliability, unless we like walking home a lot. Um, fair right. sta- Fair statement, right? So, yep. you know, if you're going to take the engine out, and this is about cost, too, and you have to balance this. We had a Jeep crawler in the shop a couple of weeks ago, and we were rebuilding the transfer case in it. And we had a series of steps we had to go through. But in your case, I'll I'll apply the same conversation I had with that customer in that, you know, it's got to be reliable. It's got to get you home so the folks at home don't miss you and say, gee, what happened to Dustin? I don't know. He went out climbing two days ago. We haven't seen him since. Um, Right. And it's got to keep you safe. The diesel is kind of a neat idea, as abstract as it might sound to people, because a diesel in the the rough, as long as it's been maintained, chances are it's not going to have too many failures unless it's calamitous. Uh, it'll take the abuse of bad weather. It'll take the abuse of, you know, crossing the river. Just put a snorkel on it and um, just watch mm-hmm. your fuel. There's some specifics with regards to a diesel. Now, converting it, that's going to be a whole horse of another color, and that might be a little bit more costly in the long run. But a good running yep. diesel in that vehicle, if you can afford the swap and do the swap, yeah, believe it or not, I like that probably best of all. I like the geo engine least of all, all right? Simply because, yep. and let me ask the question this way, is the geo engine out of something used with miles on it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, you could if be. I, if, if, I, I've got a choice of either rebuild the Samurai engine, buy a tracker engine and rebuild it, or buy a 1.9 that it has 100,000, 150,000 miles on it and just put it in, switch out the gas tank get all that stuff done by the adapter for the transfer kit or yeah. the transmission. You know, I like I like the diesel idea. I like the rebuild the Samurai engine idea. I don't like the Geo idea. The Samurai engine will probably okay. be the easiest because everything's there and it's a straight, you know, rebuild and in and out. Uh, the diesel idea right. kind of does make it a novelty, and I think it probably makes it a little bit more durable. Uh, the, the worst thing yep. you're going to have with that 1.9 Volkswagen diesel, see, Volkswagen does make some good engines, is just be be mindful of the timing belt and be mindful of you know quality of fuel you use and take care of the cooling system and it'll last a good long time. They were pretty durable. All right. All right. Uh, you had a second question. I, yeah, real quick, Dustin. I had a second question about my Ford Bronco. All right. It's got the the two hundred three transfer case with the chain. Right. And the chain starts slapping, so now I know how long I have rear wheel drive when I'm in four wheel drive. Okay. I, it's only got front wheel. It's only got front wheel. Well, it's, they don't have front wheel drive. I'm sorry. Right. So I was thinking about um, either rebuilding that chain or swapping it out for an adapter that makes it a 203, 205 doubler 
or buying a Atlas transfer case. Have you taken the case apart yet? No. Take it apart. You can't make this call until you take it apart and assess what hard parts you need. If it needed just a chain, that's pretty economical in the long run. But if you take it apart and you find out that the chain failed, you've got sprocket damage and or case damage, then you're going to end up having to replace the case because it's going to be the most cost-effective and durable in terms of reliability as well. So until you take that case apart, you really can't answer that question, and I'm not going to even try because I want you to be out there in the best possible thing I can give you and uh, keep you safe and get you home. Dustin, I appreciate the call. If you get a chance, whatever you do to the Suzuki, send us some pictures after the fact. We'll put them up on the Car Doctor Facebook page. Uh, I'm sure everybody would like to see how this turns out. I'm Ron Anini in the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. The doctor's back right after this. Don't go away. Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. And uh, just a reminder, down around the bottom of the hour, we're going to be talking to Sandy Freed from the Tire Warehouse. Could your spare tire be on the list of one that might explode and fail? And, well, just make a bad afternoon. So we want to talk about that, and you want to stick around for it. But right now, let's get over and talk to Dan on line one, 97 Chevy S10. Pick him up, or uh, SUV, I'm sorry, in the conversation about a check engine light. Dan, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Yeah, Ron, hi, I love your show. Thank hey, you, this sir. Um, is a question regarding whether I need to change the cluster in that dash, but uh, what's going on with that thing is the check-in and the light comes on, goes off, goes on, comes off, and the code on it says something about a P is in Paul 1870, which is a transmission issue. Right. And I know that I'm coming up against that, but the big thing that's going on is the uh, voltage gauge will read 14 sometimes, sometimes it'll read 9. Uh, when this happens, the fuel gauge will pulse when I turn a turn signal on, and um, other gauges are kind of down, and all of a sudden it'll pop back up and read again. And when I check the alternator, of course, it's putting out 14 all the time. So when when uh, when the volt well, let me Pardon? ask you this. Let me ask you this, Dan. When the voltmeter is acting flaky, are you looking at voltage on the alternator at that moment, or you're just checking it in the shop or in the house later on? Yeah, it was it was reading nine, and but when I checked the alternator, it was reading fourteen. Okay, then we don't have a charging system problem, and the the reason I'm asking that is I just want to you know are, are you checking it when the problem is happening? So right. my my next conversation, my next question would be to pin out the wiring harness coming up to the instrument cluster, and find the twelve volt feed and the ground, and go across that and see do we have a solid for it? Do we match charging system voltage? Or yeah, I would I would take the cluster out and send it out for test and repair to a, to an instrument cluster repair facility. Let them put it through its paces. They have had problems with those with the printed circuit board. They have had problems with those with the uh, voltage limiters inside that control the the uh, gauge readings. And it sounds like you've got that particular issue going on. So okay. you know okay. that's step one. Step two, the the P eighteen seventy, that is a that is a trans specific problem. And there's more than a few bulletins. There's one. I can give you a bulletin number if you've got a pencil handy. Yeah, go ahead. 01, 07, 30, 023, and there's a 023A, there's an 023B, and probably by the time, now that I'm thinking about it, this is so long, there's probably a C as well. 
So, you know, get a look at that, and that explains possibilities and conversation that usually leads to issues with valve body and or torque converter. If the vehicle has any sort of mileage on it, you've got to consider the fact that you're, if you do have to pull the trans, you're better off doing an overhaul and going through the unit because if this is a slippage issue, which it generally is, is are fragments of the torque converter clutch starting to fragment and be suspended in the fluid, and at what point do you end up with a bigger issue further on down the road? So get a look at the 1870, consider that bulletin, and uh, by all means send the cluster out, get that looked at, and we can kind of talk about it afterwards. Let's get over to line two. Let's talk to Tom in New City, New York, 1986 Corvette performance car, and we've got uh, a no-start issue after a time frame. Tom, welcome to the car, Doctor, sir. How can I help? All right. Thank you for taking my call. It's You're not welcome. a no-start. The car starts up beautifully, and by the way, I've been to the tire the tire place up in Spring Valley. Okay, they did my inspection. Oh, good. They're really good people. Yeah, up they there. are. Yep, yep. How can I help you? Yeah, and and see, here's the problem: the car starts right up. It idles beautifully. It runs great as long as I don't go for the unless I'm going like more than two hours away or 100 miles away. When I shut it off, whether I wait 10 minutes or five hours. The car doesn't want to start. It turns over, but it won't start. And then also, once I get it started, it doesn't want to stay lit up. You know, if I get on 17, coming back down, I got to clutch it a lot. Okay. So let me ask you this, Tom. Tom, wait a minute. When it doesn't, when it doesn't start, what do you do to get it started, or it's just the luck of the draw? It's just, you know, sometimes I pump it really hard, but it it, it doesn't seem like I change the the fuel. Um, the the fuel pump, and I changed the filter. Okay. So, like I said, the car runs like a beast. How much? You know, even when it's warm. Hey, but Tom. How, Tom. I it for a long time. Tom, how much of this wiring yeah. harness and engine control system is modified? Does this car still use the original onboard computer? Yeah, it's still everything is original. Okay. When the car goes into its no start condition, and you would have you turn the key on, do you still see a service engine or check engine light? I have that disconnected because it stayed on all the time since I put the supercharger in. Okay. So my first question is, all right, my first question is when this problem happens is, is the onboard computer alive and working? All right. As simple as that sounds, if the computer is overheating, if there's an issue there, then everything else is null and void. The first step I would do is a cheap scan tool, any scan tool, I'd plug in and look for data stream and communication with the engine computer as a very first step. Also, don't forget spark and fuel. Very important. Tom, I got to go. The clock's going to grab me. Sandy Freed coming up next. Stay tuned. I'm Ron Andy in the car locker. Welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor cruising along here at 855-560-9900. Here to answer your questions and help you out with whatever car problem you might be facing last week, today, next week, and going on so forth in the future. That spare tire, that, that lifesaver under the car, inside the car, hanging on the back of the vehicle, that we've all come to know as, hey, gee whiz, you know, if I get a flat, it'll be there. It'll do its job for me. There's a phenomenon that's been going on for about four or five years now. It, it seems to surface in regularity in terms of how often it happens and how much it makes its presence known in the news in that spare tires are failing, but not when they're on the vehicle. 
And in doing some research this past week, it's come to my attention that a lot of what might be causing this is something as simple as your vehicle is four years old, you need four tires, and you've got a full-size spare. So what you're doing is instead of replacing the th- the four tires, you're replacing three using the spare and making one of the original tires the spare tire. And then that spare becomes the one that fails in a year or two or three. And we thought it would be interesting to talk to someone that sees tires in large numbers on a regular weekly basis. And we reached out to Sandy Freed. He is from the tire warehouse, springvalleytire.com. And we're glad he's taking some time today. We kind of called him at the last minute on this busy weekend afternoon and uh, to talk to him about tires. Sandy, welcome to the car doctor, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've been doing this a while, right? You guys are um, you guys are the tire gurus, I think. I think that's a right. fair statement. Shop's almost 50 years old, so we've right. seen a couple of tires. Yeah, you've seen a few. Um, are you aware of this spare tire failures? Have you come across this at all? Interestingly enough, I just heard about this recently, so I did some research on it and found how very common it really is. Seems to happen a lot more than I ever knew, and there's a lot of reasons for it as well, I think. Yeah, what did you find as far as reasons for this happening? One is exactly what you said. People change instead of getting four tires or even five because the spare is as old as the other tires were. They use that fifth tire and only buy three using one of the best that was taken off to be used as a spare. They had forgotten that possibly they hit a pothole with that tire they're now using for a spare. Maybe it had a flat that was repaired, possibly repaired poorly. Um, the car sits either in the trunk, the spare tire sits either in the trunk or underneath the vehicle in some cases. It takes a lot of abuse during the course of normal driving, and they open up the trunk or they pull down the spare from underneath, and there's a big hole in it. It exploded. Right. Um, and, so it does happen. And it's, and it's a safety issue. I had a friend not too long ago, which is what really sort of brought it to my consciousness uh, to the forefront, and that his Suburban, his older Suburban, now here's a, I think Jeff's got an 86 or 87 Chevy Suburban with less than 50,000 miles on it. It's a very, very low mileage vehicle. And it actually had one of the original tires. Okay, we could make the case that it's a 30-year-old tire, and I understand that. Um, but still, here's an extreme where the spare tire failed and actually exploded while he was driving the vehicle and scared the bejesus out of him. Um, it's it's an issue that I think even on newer cars, when I sat down to do some research on it, it becomes a problem in that people don't realize the age of the tire. And I know that's a problem. They're really taking a hard look at birth dates of tires, if you will. Fair statement, Sandy? Fair statement. All tires have dates on them. They're coded, but it's easy enough to learn the codes. A lot of the tires that we have that people have put on as a spare, and now they've come, they're buying a new tire or repairing the old tire. We put the spare back in the trunk, but before putting it back, we take a look at it, and we might see that the cords are actually coming apart, that the sidewalls have dry rot cracks. Whatever the cracking is from, somehow we've determined that to call them dry rot. It's not always from dry rot, but cracking just got the nickname of dry rot, just so I can, I can tell right. you where yeah. I'm coming from. Uh, in between the treads, deep, deep treads, uh, your better tires, your long-wearing tires seem to have it more because they've been around a lot longer. They don't wear out as quickly. And those, those cracks open up and blow up, and uh, we recommend to customers never to put them on. They're very, very, very dangerous. Do, do you, um, go ahead. Do you see issues with inventory? I mean, you guys handle so many tires on a regular basis. I'm sure you're checking and always making sure that you've got current date-modeled or birth-dated tires, if I can use that expression, 
in I'm, I'm around long enough. My suppliers know not to send me anything that's been sitting on their shelf because I'll send it right back. And, and so we also make a point of checking our inventory. If my guys stock their tires, old ones come out first, new ones get put on the bottom or, or furthest away from us. We use the oldest inventory first, which, by the way, when I say we use old inventory, it's got to be current or I'm not using it. I'll send right. it back. And right. they will take it back. My suppliers will take anything back that I send them. And then what do they do with it? I've heard stories that a lot of the older tires, the you know tires that are beyond the date code allowance, end up going overseas for, for pennies on the dollar. Any truth to that that you're aware of? Uh, it's actually partially true. They send tons and tons of tires overseas, but it's not for pennies on the dollar. They pay big money for them. I have people that come to me to buy my scrap tires that they're sending to uh, third world nations. That They're using them with steel coming out of them, and, and they're still using them on their cars as regular everyday tires. They're still very marketable. Wow. They don't have the safety regulations that we have. And the safety regulations are placed for a reason. There's really good purposes for it. Now, you're in New York State. I read something in the news recently that New York State is working on a law. Help me out here. Five years or older, they're not going to let you put okay. the tire on the car or something? I'll, I'll, if you allow me, I'll, I'll give you two laws that they're trying to pass. Hasn't passed yet. They're trying to take tires that are dated over five years that deemed non-passable for inspection purposes. That means even if the tire was sitting in a shed, brand spanking new, you never got to use them, but now you have a five, six-year-old tire. The dates are on the tire, like I said before. They're trying to ban it from being legal during inspection. Why? Tires break down. Uh, rubber breaks down. It cracks, even from not being used. So you put on what you believe is a perfectly good tire. You're driving down the road. You hit that first pothole, and there's your blowout. Right. Uh, right. Uh, second thing they're doing is with tire repairs, which is really important, too. Plugging a tire is legal. We no longer plug tires, haven't plugged tires in ages, because New York State says they want you to take the tire off the rim. They want you to examine the inside of the tire. How does this relate to what we're talking about? A tire that's plugged goes back in as a spare. You assume that you fixed the tire. There's no more problems with it. They didn't bother taking the tire off the rim, seeing that the sidewall had internal damage. That's a potential blowout right. right then and there. And then all of a sudden, we've got the reason why that tire exploded. It got really hot, bouncing around. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was overinflated to begin with, and you put it away because you knew you had a slow leak. We create a lot of our own problems. We know we have a really slow leak, so instead of the 35 maximum that the tire is calling for, we put an L45 or so, thinking that by the time it leaks and if I need it, it'll be the right amount right. of air. Yeah. People make these assumptions, and it could be their lives. And they find out that, as I've said for years, the road is a very unforgiving place. Sandy, I, I appreciate your time today. Again, if the listeners want more more information about you or the tire warehouse is there a website that they can go to to uh, look things up absolutely springvalleytire.com all one word of course springvalleytire.com thanks sandy you go have yourself a good rest of the day and we appreciate you being here on the car thanks doctor. for having me and i am listening to you you're very welcome sir i'm ron anany and the car doctor 855-560-9900 we're back right after this Welcome back. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor rolling along at 855-560-9900. Here to take your call, answer your question, and solve your problem. Let's get over and talk to another Ron in Fayette, Maine, 94 Toyota Camry, and some noise in the back. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Well, 
Doc, I tell you, um, I've got you know, some 94 Toyota Camry, and I've had this rattle in the rear, and I don't know what it was coming from. I looked under the car and couldn't find anything. And a couple of uh, people that I know, mechanics, they looked under it and put a bar in there and rattled around and said, it's fine, they didn't see anything. So I went to the dealer and mentioned to them, and they and this dealership said, uh, yes, it's your rear struts. And I said, okay, fine. And they said, well, and oh, by the way, your front struts are also having a problem. So let me, thought, let me okay. guess, did you do all four struts? Yes, and, the, and they got a little distant when they realized that I had a lifetime guarantee with the struts. Right. So it was parts of labor for free. Right, so let me ask you this question. If they did the four struts, is the car fixed? No. Okay, which I kind of figured because it's not the struts. I can tell you what it is, but it's not the struts. What the, what the service writer was trying to do was make enough commission to buy lawn furniture, but that's a horse of another color. So what's real common on the Camrys and a lot of the Toyotas is the rear sway bar bushings, not the links. The links do go bad, and you have to test them. But the bushings seem to be the most overlooked component on those vehicles because everybody just assumes it's solid rubber and it's there and it's not cracked or missing, then it's okay. And one of the ways you can test it is to take a rubber dead blow hammer, just a rubber mallet, or we call them a dead blow, it's just got shot peen in it, and just smack the bar. That sway bar is like a tuning fork. And if those bushings are worn, oh, boy, is that bar going to make noise. Now, sometimes the bushings are so bad you can grab the bar and you'll get physical movement of the bar in the bushing. And it will replicate in a very small manner the noise you're hearing in the car. Remember, the way the engineers designed this unintentionally is they put this bar surrounded by rubber on top of this big empty trunk or this big empty space. Now when the bushing has some noise to it, it creates that hollow sound. Now the trunk area kind of magnifies it and carries the noise forward into the cabin of the vehicle. So that little tiny bushing, the least little bit of play and, and movement there, just creates up this harmonic that will, it, it sounds like a symphony. So yes. b- before we go any further, the first thing I would do is get it up in the air and take a very hard look at those bushings and be absolutely certain. If they're soft enough and worn enough that they allow the bar to slide or move, then they're really suspect as causing a problem because those bushings are so tight around that bar when they're healthy, the bar won't move. Oh, all right, because they did put a type of metal crowbar or something and tried to move it, and they said it seemed tight. Right. But I'll, I'll go back to him and mention it and right. uh, take a have real replace. T- take a real hard look at the bushings and the links. It's a good idea, you know, do the links, but the links are obvious. You move the links, it'll clunk and bang and it'll it'll be a real obvious fault to it. But with regards to the the sway bar bushings, they are the most overlooked component back there. Do that, Ron, and then give me a call back and we can talk about it if you need further direction. All right, sir? All righty. Good luck to you. Let's get on over real quick and sneak in Larry from Tampa, Florida. Larry, how's things going with this 93 Volvo? What can I do for you? Usually very well. Before we get to that, uh, uh, Ron, I'd be remiss if I didn't speak for all callers and just applaud the great work that Harry does in uh, coordinating everything on this end, and we're very grateful. This is what we've got. It's a 1993 240. Wait a minute. Whoa. Time. What? Time out. All the great work Harry does. Yeah, well, you know, listen. Um, You know, I think Harry's paying people to say that, so we'll just... uh, 
we'll just attribute it to that. Yeah, go ahead, Larry. We just can't let that slide. But Can you ahead. hear me okay, Ron? Yeah, we're good. Go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. What do you got? Larry? Are you there? Larry? Oh, yes, Ron. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm tripping. No, we've got a 1993 240 Volvo wagon. Right. It's got 25,000 miles. It's in excellent condition. It was stored for about uh, seven years uh, until, about 19, until about 2014. It's in runs and starts very well, but after it has been running about half an hour at a highway speed of between, I'd say, 50 and 65 or so. It shuts it, off. It, it, yeah, it experienced like a fuel starvation. Okay, when it, got when it filter and pumps. Well, when it dies, Larry, what's it missing? Spark, injector pulse, fuel, or you haven't tested any of that yet? It's, the ignition seems to be in excellent condition. We think it's a fuel problem. Would you put a fuel pressure gauge on it, do you think, Ron? Well, yeah. When you say you think ignition is good, how do you know ignition is good? Have you just done something as simple as testing, testing for spark? Yes, and we have spark, but because it's an intermittent problem, I can't say we always have it. What makes me think it's a fuel problem is that... The engine, if you run it at high speed when the problem is happening, you can keep the engine running, but when it goes to idle, it stalls. Okay. Um, what we could have here is a mass airflow issue, very common. We could have a – and, yeah, I would I would definitely take and do a fuel pressure test. Here's a, I'm going to give you a quick list, Larry, and then i got to go. I'm up against the clock. Yeah, let's check fuel pressure. When the car dies out on the road, where is pressure? Let's take a fuel sample. They have some known issues with fuel quality and distribution in the tank. Problems in there, although you said you put pumps in it. What did the inside of the tank look like? I want to know. You put a filter in it. Good move. Let's do fuel pressure. Let's do volume. Do we really have good spark? Let's use a spark tester. One thing to keep in mind, they are prone to fail. The main system relay under the center console, and sometimes they're out in the right front corner of the fender well, they are known components to fail as well, and they will cause the exact symptoms you're describing. you got some homework to do. Call me back next week and let me know. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We are back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor as we kind of wind things down this hour. Let's do a quick piece of email. This one comes to us from Larry in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Hey, Car Doctor, I've got a 2000 Honda Accord that's been in and out of the repair shop a couple of times now. They tell me it's setting a fault code P1381. Even though the car runs okay, the check engine light's on. They've tried replacing the distributor. They've done and gone and replaced a couple of different sensors, and I'm at a loss as they are too. We're not really quite sure where to look next. Can you offer us any insight? Larry, Ridgewood, New Jersey. Yeah, Larry, listen. Common problem, 2000, 2001, 2002, all that generation of cords, and even some of the Civics have an issue with a 1381, which is a disruption or erratic information and signal out of the cam position sensor or the top dead sensor inside the distributor assembly. And what's the biggest cause that no one really seems to take a look at or acknowledge is issues with alternator failure. Not that the alternator is not charging, but one of the diodes could be going bad, causing a problem with AC voltage leaking into the wiring harness 
and making its way back to the PCM, causing a disruption of signal. So what they should be doing, and no one ever seems to think to do this, I guess because it's not obvious staring in in your face, and again, it's back to the conversation at the top of the hour, a diagnostic routine. One of the things they need to do is perform an alternator uh, test, tech to charging system. Does it have correct voltage? Does it have correct amperage output? And is it passing a diode test? And I'd be willing to bet you're going to find this vehicle fails the diode test, which means it's got an AC current problem, and that's what's causing the false or the real 1381, depending upon your perspective. Just a different way of looking at it. Till the next time, I'm Ron Anany and the Car Doctor reminding you, good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless.